But let's look together to uh, Luke chapter 14 uh, in, our, in our Bibles, and we're going to read it in just a, a second. And if we remember from looking at Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14 introduced us to another time where Jesus uh, is invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner, lunch, whatever it may be. And, and it's on the Sabbath, so it's on their, their holy day, their, their day of worship. And at that point, uh, Jesus is there, and he sees a guy that needs to be healed, and there's a lot there, too. You can go back and look to what's going on um, there. And then he teaches the guests. We saw that last week, and the hosts. But what we see in that, in the healing, in, in the, the, the correcting of the, the guests, and, and to have to, to, to be humble, right, to look for the humble means and not search to exalt themselves, and also to the, to the host to invite people who they normally wouldn't invite uh, to, to, the, to their dinners. It was, it was all about Jesus teaching this new kingdom ethic, this, the new economy of a sense of the, the kingdom of God, that this is the, the great reversal to, to what is normal, right? To have people over to your homes that you normally would never have uh, uh, consideration to be with or, or to be humble and to let other people be before you. It's a reversal of the, the social norms of what we would call normal. But, but if all we do is take these ethics of the kingdom of God and, uh, and apply them to our Lives, and if we, we put everybody else before us and we try to have as many meals as possible with, with poor people and to live generous, and to, uh, then, then are we really getting to the depths of what Jesus seems to be teaching us about the kingdom of God? Um, we kind of put it last week where we're, we're kind of putting the cart before the horse a little bit. And this time we are gonna we're gonna look at the we're gonna look at the how we do these things. You see, we have this this tendency, especially in the in, in the Bible Belt, to to only want to change how we live. We want to change the outward. We want to, we want to change how we dress. We want to change how, where we go. We want to change the kind of relationships we have. We want to change how, how we give, whether it be generously or, or not. We want to give to the poor and care for the poor. We, we want to go to Bible studies and be a part of many of these things and listen to Christian music and, and, and sermons and all these good things. But what often happens then is the kind of relationship that, that begins to develop with, with God is this, I'll do things you ask me to do. Those things are on this surface level, and I'd rather not talk about anything else. And, and I'd rather not talk about anything else. I, I'm more than willing to do every one of these things, but if you want to really get down to it, I'm, I don't want to go there. And, and that's what we do, or that's what's done, is there's this application of the ethics of the Bible to do religious things, to live right, to have right action before man and God. But hear me on this. When it, 
when it comes down to it, we really want God to leave our hearts alone. And, and, if, and if God is not messing with our hearts and we are doing all of these things, then it's so much easier to just justify ourselves with those right actions. We certainly can justify ourselves before everyone else. But the problem with only coming to God with, with right actions and, and not a right heart is that it in no way pleases God. It in no way pleases God, because if that was the case, then where would these Pharisees be? These Pharisees would be in right standing with God. They would have been good to go. But as we look at this parable of the the great banquet, Jesus is going to show us what the right heart is. It's the why and the how we have the, the humble attitude and the, the heart and desire and affection to love God, follow Christ, and then to be radically transformed so that we will be on mission like Jesus is. It's the gospel in the great banquet. Let's look at that. Verse 15. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, again, it's always good when someone blurts out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have bought five yoked oxen, and I go to examine them. Please please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I can't come. Now, does that always work? I mean, we don't even have to go further, really, to unpack that too much, guys. Does it ever work to blame it on your wife? No, they'll always find out. I cannot come. 21. So the servant came and said to his... So this, yeah, one, one verse. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to all the streets and the lanes in the city, and bring in the poor, and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, come to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquets." And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see this inerrant and inspired word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. I don't know if you noticed or not, but one of the songs that we sang this morning is directly from this passage. It's directly from this passage, an old hymn written by Isaac Watts, How Sweet and Awful is the Place 
hearing it myself for the first time only just a few years ago at, at T4G, it captivates and it, the affections and the emotions that, that Christians have toward God in light of his glorious grace. That's what that, that song encompasses. And in the first verse, I mean, it, it takes us quickly there. It takes us quickly there to those emotions of God's grace. The, the sweetness and yet the, the awfulness or the, the bitterness of God's grace because sweet because we have been given it and yet bitter because we know we don't deserve it. And as the song moves into the second, third, and fourth verse, the hymn writer takes us in a direction of meditation on a very deep spiritual level that's based upon this great feast, this great banquet. And we just sung these verses together, but verse 2, while all our hearts and songs join to admire the feast. We're so glad we're, we're there, but each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why am I even here? What am I doing here? And it continues in verse 3, why was I made to hear your voice? And enter while there is room when thousands make a wretched choice rather starve than come. Verse 4, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin." Singing those lyrics, reading those lyrics, reading this passage this morning, brothers and sisters, can you feel that? Can you feel that amazing grace? How sweet and awful is the place with Christ through those narrow doors brought us in. So there's three things I want to show you this morning from this passage in light of that. And what this passage is showing us is, number one, the excuses that we can make. Second, the grace of God toward us. And third, the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. So let's deal with the excuses. The excuses that are made by those who have been invited to the banquet and why they couldn't come. But let's, let's set the stage again. Let's set the story again. Verse 15, right, after all the, the things that Jesus just said to them, kind of confronting them, Verse 15, this guy blurts out in some way. I don't know if he's trying to justify them or he's just breaking the awkward tension. But he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Blessed is everyone. And, and he's right. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, the Pharisees had, they had a theology of the end times. Remember, they were the, they were the group that believed in a, a literal resurrection. They believed that there was going to be a, a, a resurrection. And then in that future resurrection, they would be sitting at the table for the banquet feast in heaven. They, they believed that, that it, this would literally happen. And the assumption of the Pharisees, again, was that they would be numbered among those distinguished guests. So everything that they were doing in their dinner parties was a practice run of how things they thought were going to be in heaven for them. That was their assumption. That they would be the welcomed ones. That they would be the honored ones. So what do you do with a group of churchgoers 
who think that they are getting into heaven because of their heritage, their right living, and yet they are completely oblivious that the host of the great banquet is standing right in front of them. And that they still think that their qualification for coming into the banquet is based upon their works. What do you do then? Well, this is what Jesus does. He tells them a parable. And he tells them a parable. Again, these are the purpose of parables. Because those who have the spiritual ability to hear and to see these parables, they will. He tells them of a man who's giving a great banquet. And this man who's having this banquet, he invited many to be a part. I mean, he sent out his invitations, right? And, and before there were invitations that we mail out, and before there were post office and internet party planning sites and evites and things like that, a servant was required, and this is kind of the tradition, to go to every home that they were willing to invite and to personally invite them to come to the feast. We want you to come to our feast. We, this person re- requests your invitation. And at that point, that would let the, the servant go back to the master of the host of the party and give them an idea of how many people are coming. We call that an RSVP, right? To RSVP, who's, who's coming? And so they could plan the food and they can prepare the table of how many people were going to be and accepting the invitation. Now, just like what verse 17, 17 says, once the meal is prepared, the banquet is all set up, the food is all prepared, the table is being set, at the right time, the host looks at the servant again and says, now go back and bring them in again. Tell them that it's time to go. All right, so there's no group text, no emails. It is, it's ready, come. It's ready, come. Both parties were to be ready at that point, right? That's the reason for the second invitation. Now, all of this has spiritual significance, by the way. Jesus is getting at something here. The master of the house is is God. And, And just as he sent out the first invitation for the feast, so has God. God has sent to his people the first invitation to the kingdom of God to be ready. And he has done that through the law. He has done that through the prophets. He has done that through the, through the priests. The whole Old Testament was an invitation to be ready. It was the whole invitation to be ready, to be prepared, and to trust in the promises of God that they will soon be fulfilled. That's the first invitation. That's what that means. But there's a second invitation. All right, it's ready. It's, it's, it's time, right? It's, it's time. And all those who were invited to the feast, come now, is, is ready. It's here, right? And the angels declared it, right? Didn't the angels, when Jesus was born, they declared that it's now, it's here. Come. Come. The feast is ready. The Son of God is here, and he is inviting them to come. But what happens? Just like in life, in the parable, all begin to make excuses of why they can't come and why they can't go. Something better has come up. 
And Jesus gives us three examples of those in verses 18 through 20, and I think he's getting at something with those different examples. Number one, they're all lame. And some of them are somewhat good reasons, but they are lame. One bought a field, and, and they bought the field either before the first invitation or sometime in between. But here's the deal about buying land. It's going to be there after the party. The second bought a group of oxen, and they needed to go inspect them. You don't buy a group of oxen if you haven't already inspected them. And the third excuse, they recently got married. And this one's really lame. This one's really lame because, number one, the host wouldn't have had a party if there was a wedding in between. These were just excuses. Not for doing bad things. They didn't want to go out, well, I can't come because i got to go rob a jewelry store. No, they were, in a sense, good excuses. Lame, in a sense, when you look at the timing. They wanted to be good stewards. I want to be good stewards of my land. I want to be good stewards of my, of my ox. I want to be, I want to be sure that my, my family obligations are, are taken care of. But notice that with the first two, they have to do with possessions, land, oxen. And the second one, or the third one, I mean, has to do with family. Has to do with family. And here's what we have to look at these two things, these two things that are good, but yet they can become excuses. In which Jesus shows us over and over again that these two things can pose a serious threat to our hearts when they are idols. I know I'm really kind of going, honing in on this point, but this is very important. Let me show you why. The parable, the parable of the sower, right? The seed that is sown among the thorns represents people who fail to produce fruit, a crop, because they are choking on what? They are choking on the cares and riches and pleasures of this world, of this life. Another time, Jesus warns the crowd, be on your guard against all covetousness, possessions, the desire for possessions and things. Because he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And if you remember, that's when he goes on and tells the parable of the rich guy who had a bumper crop that year. And instead of taking his abundance and using that as a, a channel for the glory of God, he uses it for his own self. And he tears down his barns to build new ones. It's a danger. It's a threat to him. He fails to use those riches to show that he is rich toward God and not toward the world. Later in Luke 16, we're going to get there eventually. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other. Or he will be devoted to one, despise other. You cannot serve God and money. But it is in chapter 18 where I think we see one of the most saddest examples of this. 
when the rich young ruler leaves Jesus, he leaves sad, brokenhearted, because he loves his possession more than he loves the Lord. And to him, that was the best excuse he had. Possessions can be deadly because they are good excuses of why we can't come because it sounds like good stewardship and wisdom at times to our hearts. But just as bad sometimes family can be. Family also can be just as detrimental to following Jesus because family is also a good excuse because after all, doesn't Jesus want me to give everything and sacrifice everything for them? Isn't family the most important thing in my life? And what Jesus is saying is that that too can be dangerous. The question is, is not whether or not your family is important. The question is, does your heart love them more than you love the Son of God? At the, the end of Luke chapter 9, if you remember, there are three guys who yell out to Jesus, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. And one of those guys says, but first... Let me go bury my father. And the third says, let me go say my goodbyes. And Jesus says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. In the end, excuses only reveal our hearts, don't they? Because our excuses only show all the other things we are busy with and love more. Even good things. Even the good things. And all the while, it's running from God who is getting to our hearts. Who is getting to our hearts. Here, here's why we have, we have such a weak, stunted version of Christianity. Because we have plenty. We have plenty of things to make excuses for that sound really good. That sounds really spiritual, and we justify it in our own hearts, and we can justify it to, to others. And yet what God is saying, without transformation, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what, what you do. It's like a, a tree trying to grow on shallow soil. It's like a tree trying to grow on, on shallow soil. It can't. It'll never mature. It'll never roots. Because of your excuses. That keeps you from transformation. What is, what is really clear here is that no matter the excuse for them to not come to the feast, I want you to see this. That after the second invitation, all of them were a deep insult to the host. So in these things that we justify as being being our good excuses, they are all a demeaning insult to the host. Brothers and sisters, excuses are an insult to the glory and honor of God. Let's go back to the parable. The host of the dinner finds himself in a difficult position, doesn't he? Everything's ready, food is prepared, set up, but the guests who were invited, they're not coming. He is insulted. He is angered. But instead of canceling, right, instead of canceling and just blowing the whole thing up, he does something that is stunning. He does something that is 
stunning. He sends his servant back out. Not to plead with them to come, but he sends his servants out to the small roads and the alleys to bring in guests who are willing to come. In fact, it's the, it's the poor and the, the crippled and the blind and the, the lame. Those who Jesus said earlier in verse 13, the ones that, that he said in verse 13 are the ones that we are to invite to our homes. He said those are the ones that, that the master of the house is bringing into, into his feast. He tells the servant, bring them in because there are still room. And he sends the servant out again to bring in even more. To bring in more. Go to the highways and the hedges in the countryside and invite the outsiders. Why? He tells us, because his house will be full. The opportunity to come to the feast was now extended to the less desirable members of society. Those who could not, remember from last week, those who could not pay back or reciprocate the favor. Hear that. The only qualification for attendance was their willingness to accept the invitation. Clearly not based upon who they are, but what is it based upon? The generosity and the grace of the host. The shock of the first half of the parable was, was the people who refused to come to the banquet. That's shocking. But what's even more stunning is the scandal in the second half that the host would even consider to invite those and those who accept the invitation to come. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame are not the kind of people we would naturally think are those who have the inside track. We just don't see it. Right? It's, just, it's just not on our radar at all much less than having the inside track to the favor of God with an invitation to the kingdom party. Again, the, the, the sign of the, the great reversal that Jesus has brought in the kingdom of God. But, but understand this. If someone is in this life literally poor, and they're handicapped, or they're an outsider, lame, crippled, whatever it may be, that doesn't make them an automatic candidate to be invited. That's not what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is inviting the spiritually poor, the spiritually crippled, the spiritually blind, and the spiritually lame to the great banquet. Beloved Christians, real Christians are the ones who have accepted this invitation. Why? Because they know they are poor. They know they are blind and they're crippled and they know that they are lame. They know that they are poor with, with nothing to offer to pay this debt. Nothing. They know that they were crippled and made powerless by sin. They know that they are blind because of the veil of darkness that, have, that has draped over their hearts, making them once unable to see the truth of Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit has brought his light. They know that they were lame without the grace of God because without it they are left helpless, unable to come to Jesus on their own. And if Jesus hadn't bore upon the cross the worst and the best of who they were, then they would never, then they too, they would have faced the wrath of God. 
This is why to us the Lord's Supper is so powerful. Because it symbolizes to Christians the, the, all of this of being poor and blind and crippled and lame. That's what it symbolizes to Christians. And when they gather at the table as, as his church, we are together proclaiming that this is what we are. And yet despite that, he still brought us to the table. Why? We go, there, no, we go there dumbfounded because we know we don't deserve this. We know we don't deserve the juice. We know we don't deserve the bread. We know we don't deserve it. But yet he still bids us, come, come, all you are burdened. Come find me and find rest. This is why the Pharisees missed it completely. They missed it completely because all, with all of their excuses of because of who they are and who they think that they are, they thought they were just absolute shoe-ins. They're not poor. We're not crippled. We're not lame. We're not blind. They never understood their position. And this is why there are still very religious people today who still make excuses because they do not understand their condition they do not understand their position and their standing before God. Because if everything is all right, my right living is good enough for me. I've jumped through all the religious loops and I've done as much right as I can. Where's my mansion? That's the attitude. That's the attitude of the, of the Pharisees. But Christians see it different. Christians see it completely different. They understand that without God's grace... Without God's grace, they would be left outside and helpless and broken and even sadly content, content with their position. A.W. Pink said, to declare, God's, to declare that God helps those who help themselves is to repudiate one of the most precious truths in all the Bible. And in the Bible alone, namely, that God helps those who are unable to help themselves, who have tried again and again only to fail. That's what Christians know. Christians know that it's only God who is able to help them. Christians know that. They feel that. Are, are you that Christian? And the, Are you that Christian? And... In the kingdom of God, it is, it is only those who know they don't belong are the ones who won't miss out on it. And if it is an insult to God's glory and honor to make excuses, then brothers and sisters, it is to the glory of God and the salvation of those who know they are undeserved and un earned invitation your salvation is for God's glory and your life stands as a picture of his glory because you are broken you are crippled and lame you know that so when we sit down with people who are literally poor and broken and lame and crippled and outsiders we can sit there and say me too we can say me too and this is why Isaac Watts wrote what he wrote. While all our hearts and our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why am I a 
do you feel that? Does that? Is that a question that just perplexes you? Oh, Lord, why was I invited? Why was I allowed here? And the answer to the question is because of his grace. His abundant grace. Amazing grace. I want to show you one last thing. There's, there's such hope in this passage as well. And, and, and I want to show you that this hope is, 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 is just steeped in the character and nature of God. Right? The master of the house is the one of grace, but is also one of love. If, if there is grace and love, then even now, brothers and sisters, there is hope. And there is hope for anyone until Christ returns, even for the religious excuse makers. There is still hope. Two things I want to show you. Verse 22 and verse 23, there's two little statements there that just show this. The first servant sent back out. Why? Because there's still room. And the second servant is sent back out even further for the Gentiles, for the outsiders. Why? Because that his house may be filled. That his house may be filled. Do you see the hope there? Do you see the hope there? It, it tells me that, that God's people will be saved, right? And that God will draw them to himself because he will fill his house. But there's also still room. There's also hope for the, the law. So what does the master tell the servant to do? To go compel them. To go compel them. To come. To preach the gospel. Tell them, share the gospel with them. Spend as much time as it takes to show them the spiritual brokenness before God and the great love of God through Christ. Show them that you too are a beggar, but that you know where to find real lasting food. Share meals with unbelievers, the poor, the people unlike you, and that are unable to pay you back because it shows the gospel of grace. If we want to be a gospel-centered people, then may our lives be gospel-centered. If you've been captivated by that grace and perplexed by, by God's grace, then, then you too are just like the servant of the master being sent out into the alleys and into the small towns and into the back roads to compel the people to come. Pity the nations of our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming. Beautiful gospel realities in the banquet. In the banquet. And soon we will enjoy these realities with our Savior. But there are also some steep warnings here too, isn't there? There's some, there's some steep warnings. You see that in verse 15. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Again, this is said about religious people. Religious people who, who go to church, who know their Bibles, who dress the part, they know all the motions, they've memorized a few passages, they've even tasted the Lord's Supper at their church. 
but they will not taste the real feast to come. Why? Because when it comes down to it, so many are more satisfied with their right living and doing good than about transformation. They have all the excuses and all the reasons, but they never add up. Brothers and sisters, we must hear this warning for ourselves that we too may examine ourselves, to examine our own hearts, to, to have, remember, right action without right heart doesn't please God. So many don't want the Lord pressing on their hearts, as we said earlier. That's stepping on our toes, preacher. But it's not the toes that hurts, it's our hearts that hurt. Because we know what Jesus is telling us is right. When we realize that, it's then, then, it's then in that place when we can see our condition, that we are the poor, we are the lame, we are the crippled, we are blind. It's when we can say, yeah, I know it hurts, and I know it's going to continue to hurt, but that's me. I'm the crippled, I'm the poor, I'm the lame, I'm the blind, but I'm going to lean in, and I'm going to trust anyways, and we call that faith. We call that faith. And it's right there in that place where Jesus brings us into his kingdom. That's what salvation is. And he welcomes you into to the table. It's not for those who have got it all figured out. And for those who got it all together. But it's for those who know that they are broken. Know they are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And it's those who Jesus invites in. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful again for the word. May it have its full effect on us. May we realize our states and nature of our condition of who we are, born as sinners, spiritually completely bankrupt before you. But oh, the precious good news of your grace. Your grace that has saved us. May we always be, may we always be just perplexed by the question, Lord, why was I a guest? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Love you all.